You are listening to the Hoops Fix podcast, the official voice of the UK's largest basketball website. Visit hoopsfix.com for exclusive news, videos and more. Welcome to episode 19 of the Hoops Fix podcast with me, your host, Sam Nita, full-time British basketball advocate. It's all very fresh in my mind this week because I'm recording the intro straight after I've recorded the interview and it is another very interesting conversation with Newcastle Eagles managing director um, and former BBL chairman, uh, Paul Blake. Paul, uh, our relationship goes back a few years now. I actually... For some reason, the first time we spoke properly on the phone really sticks out in my mind because I was on my way to a dirty little takeaway shop in East London um, and I took the call thinking it was going to be a quick conversation and an hour and a half later, um, I got off the phone. So he can talk, but he is one of the most intelligent and articulate um, people within British basketball and has so much uh, interesting insight. So I knew the conversation would be a good one and it, and it definitely proved out to be. Uh, we spoke for a little over an hour um, and we touched upon so many different topics ranging from the facility that the Eagles recently got planning permission for um, going into Europe and how far he thinks uh, Eagles are away from doing that and when he thinks it's going to happen. Um Community programs, financing, uh, talent development, uh, British basketball as a whole, why he thinks databases are so important. Um, but yeah, really good conversation, which I hope will provide a lot of interest for people, um, giving a bit more of a behind-the-scenes info into how clubs are ran and kind of how people are thinking within the sport. As always, I am contactable. Would love to hear your feedback. Sam at hoopsfix.com is my email. Uh, of course, all the social media platforms, Twitter, Facebook, Snapchat, Instagram. Uh, we're on all of them at Hoopsfix. So by all means, reach out on there. Um, as always, please, if you have a spare second, go to iTunes. Give us a rating and a review. It does help us rise in the rankings, which helps us spread the word. And finally, as I mentioned last week, we are in the Aviva Community Fund, um, trying to raise a bit more money for the Hoops Fix All-Star Classic. If you go to hoopsfix.com forward slash vote, you can help us uh, vote by voting for us, giving us your 10 votes, um, which will give us a chance to raise more money for our event and grow it to make it bigger and better. Anyway, that's enough for me. Here is the conversation with me and Paul Blake. We're honoured to be here with Newcastle Eagles Managing Director, Paul Blake. Paul, welcome to the show. Hi, Sam. Hi. So, uh, yeah, this has been on the cards for a while. I've wanted to catch up with you. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of stuff I want to go into going back uh, history-wise, but also I think uh, it's, it's worth starting with something a little bit more recent, which is, of course, uh, the Newcastle Eagles facility. Um, you recently got uh, permission for that. Can you talk a little bit about kind of what the process has been like and what the plans are um, for what you're going to be doing with it? Yeah, yeah. It's um, fair to say it's been a long long time in the in the making. We've, we've probably been having this discussion, oh, since nine... 19- Teen, or let's know. Hang on a second. Two thousand and two thousand and seven, two thousand and eight. I think we we probably first started out trying whether there was a a possibility. Um, slip of the tongue with a nineteen, but actually late. <laughs> we should we should have been looking at this late nineties, really. Uh, but that's a whole other story. Um, 
so yeah, so it's been it's been uh, seven eight years in the offing on and off, um, and uh, trying to bring all the different partners together to to get it over the line um, has been difficult. And um, we were still at Newcastle Arena when when the uh, conversation first started. So uh, rather ironically, obviously made the, the the move to Northumbria in the midst of that. Um, which was absolutely the right move for us to make, uh, and, and has been ever since. But ultimately, you know, getting our own our own home, um, and for any club in this country, getting a, their own home and, and an opportunity for proper sustain, sustainability and growth is has got to be where it's at. Am I right in thinking that you? Because I feel like you wasn't there already a point where you actually did get planning permission for for, for was it the same facility? Was it a different facility? And, and kind of what happened with that one? Yeah, so we um, so this is the second time round. The first time round, the uh, the way we approached the project was with Newcastle City Council leading. Um, uh, the the issue at hand always being, um, and and will be the case for every club in this country. Um, we needed a loan uh, to uh, to cover a a gap in the funding and uh, obviously we don't have any assets so if you don't have an asset you it's very hard to take a large loan on uh consequence of that is the ca- the city council led that first project um with the anticipation that they would own the building and lease it to us um what happened was the original drawings were um Kind of our wish list, I would I would say we were a little bit naive in the process, and the bill cost was coming out at nine and ten million. Um, con- the consequence of all of that was we we kind of just had to look at it and say, right, scratch this, we need to start again, and uh, try and get the bill cost in at a, a level that we knew our business plan could uh, could suffer. And equally, it gave us the opportunity to go out and uh, talk to more partners about grants and partnership opportunities to. To get it right, and in terms of what people can expect, like seating-wise, um, sort of features of the facility, what kind of stuff is is, is this one going to have? Yeah, so it's very very similar to the Leicester build. Um, you know, spent many an hour with Kevin Routledge uh, through through the process that he went through. Um, you know, followed him through day day by day. Uh, pretty much the, 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 the preamble to the build and then the whole year of the build itself. So it's very similar. Uh, Three-court hall, 3,000 seats, um, all, that, all that rotate back into the walls. Uh, we've got a big corporate area, which um, breaks down into four classroom spaces uh, during the week, but it's about 270 square metres, so it can do a 26-27 table dinner in its own right. Um uh, six changing rooms, big foyer space, which, um, you know, from our learnings of, of 14 years at Newcastle Arena and then six years at uh, Sports Central, got to have that big open area to um, allow people into the building and pro- properly uh, offer the secondary spend opportunities that we've we've never had as a club. Um, big gym, um and uh, if I haven't already said it, a kitchen area as well, hundred hundred square meter kitchen, so we can uh, we can cook and offer actually offer opportunities um, uh, for healthy living sessions, uh, uh, teaching catering. Um, why I bring that up is one of our partners in the project is Newcastle College, 
um, that will be renting the facility from us, and they have a big catering school. Right. A lifestyle academy, so we're going to be working very closely with them in order to um, give uh, young students like real work environment opportunities for events. And so, so in terms of the bigger picture, you know, I know we've spoken about this before, um, and it's something I've been writing this article for ages, which actually I might try and finish this week, uh, which is kind of how the facility thing fits in with uh, with the club and how important you know you you believe it to be in terms of making a professional club in this country profitable. Like, why why does it matter? Like, why do you think it is so important that clubs have their own facility? Um, ultimately, if I can very briefly explain the business model and, and why it differs slightly from European models. Uh, so for 20 years, or the 20 years I've been involved, we've had to hire a facility from a, from a landlord, whether, whether that be the arena in Newcastle or, or Sports Central here. Uh, obviously, we have to speculate a market to, to sell tickets in order to help to cover that higher rate. Um, and the difficult area that then follows is we've never received any secondary spend. So all of the burgers and the Cokes and the hot dogs and, you know, beers and everything that gets sold on a match night other than our own merchandising goes to the landlord, uh, which effectively means um, the income that I have available uh, from, from a match night experience to put towards the team is the difference between the ticket income and what I've spent to market. Does that make sense? Yeah. And what, in terms of figures, you know, when we're talking about estimations of secondary spend, um, you know, how much money are we talking about? Like what, you know, if you compare, let's say, let's say, let's compare what, what you have right now and let's compare it to what a game would be in your new facility. What do you yeah. think the difference would be in terms of the amount of money you could make on, a, on an individual game night? We would double our turnover straight away. Really? Double it straight away. And um, depending on how we, how good a job we do on the secondaries and how good a job we do on corporate, because, again, we've been restricted in terms of corporate access. Um, no, you know, uh, it's just the nature of the buildings that we've hired. They just haven't had the, the type of corporate rooms that uh, we know we need. So, essentially, I've got, best part of 220 corporate guests and um, the biggest room that we can entertain corporate in at Sports Central is, is for 100. Um, so that, that causes, you know, and it's not it's not the university's um, fault at all. It's just the way the building was built. And, uh, you know, it's not built as a priority for us. It's a, as you know, it's an absolutely fantastic um, sports facility, one of the best in the country. Uh, but it's but it's it's got multiple uses, and it's priority usages for the students. So, you know, I can't uh, I can't take issue on that at all. It's just we need we need a room and a and a, and a space that can cater for that for that corporate. That corporate um, will also, you know, bring in a an increased secondary income that um, we can't quite tap into at the moment. We do to a point, but not in the way that I'd like to. So what, what, can you explain a little bit about what you mean? But like what, what would you actually be able to get out of having the extra corporate space? So if you, you, know, you go to any, any regular um, Premier League or Championship football game or, or, or go to a, you know, a Viva Premiership rugby match, you'd expect to see a large corporate room with... Um, 
you know, in, in, in some of these organizations, literally hundreds of tables um, of, of corporate guests who are all paying for those tables. So now we're not expecting for one, one minute to, uh, um, to be in the hundreds of tables, but what we do have is a room that can do, you know, probably close to 30 tables a game. So, so anything up to sort of 300 corporate guests who are coming for a meal, corporate evening. Um, right. That's like, is that something you sell to sponsors? Yeah, we sell to sponsors, or, or actually, it, what it what it does is, uh, and this is the way it works at the in in, in other sports is, you don't actually, um, you don't address it as sponsorship. You address it as corporate hospitality because there are there are companies out there that don't want to sponsor um, because it takes a different kind of commitment, but are very happy to buy a table of ten for one night. Right. You see, so it taps into a, a, a different niche of a market. And if I was to say to you that in in our region, there are the best best part of nine thousand businesses. Okay, uh, yeah. you know, very very small to obviously, you know, the, the larger PLCs in the area, and they all, all to a greater or lesser degree, get engaged in corporate activity, whether it's golf days or or going to dinners or you know using sport as a as a way of meeting people it's just that's how people network and that's how business gets done and actually there's you know there's a whole um in in terms of what we already do and what we've been doing for years on 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 a corporate basis that networking opportunity always has spin-offs particularly into um when when those companies get to hear about what we do in the community right and Um, have you uh you know you I'll probably need to speak to Kevin about it, but but you've obviously said you had had a lot of conversations with Kevin. How much of a difference has the facility actually made to their business? Uh, I think it's early days. I've not got um, you know a significant level of access yeah. to their accounts. Obviously, um, seems to me the building's working well. Uh, um, the effect that that that's having. Um, uh, specifically on the on the BBL team, well, they're top of the league. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, uh, they have a they have a very strong squad. Um, they're talking about playing in Europe next season, so so it would suggest to me that that things are on a on an upward trend. Um, you know, and they they've done a fantastic job in a very very short space of time. You know, so the whole time I've been talking about us having a building, they've gone from. Um, you know, almost uh, ceasing to exist to yeah. to what they are now. It's uh, an incredible story, really. So, so for me, you know, follow case studies. A good practice is always the thing. But uh, but the build, you know, going back to your, your question about how do, how does the building help a club uh, grow, become sustainable, and then grow? It's you know, the the secondary spend is one thing, including the corporate hospitality. The the other huge area for us is our community programs don't have a home. Um, now, by nature of what we do, the, the foundations work is is you know outreach and it's right out to the far ends of Tyne and Weir and and up into Northumberland on a on a weekly basis. But what we need is a focal point. Our national league program, you know, the teams train over six or seven different venues wherever we can get from the sites that we hire. Yeah. They never see they never see each other. The fourteens don't see the sixteens. The sixteens don't see the eighteens. The ability to go and do one to ones is is 
completely limited. Same story as as everywhere else in the country. You know, limited access to facilities means that that you know you can't get a program in place that you really want to. So uh, we we have a believe it or not we have a central venue league of fifty teams. Um, and uh, that that CVL, the, the teams all play on a Saturday, and uh, obviously in one one or two, it's actually two locations that we uh, we have to spread it over. But we want to be bringing that into one site. Again, the kids that are playing, five hundred or so kids that are teams, um, get to better understand the pathway because it's in the same building, and we'll make you know very very sure that they un- they all understand what they're part of, which is difficult to do right now. So. So you've got the you've got the corporate secondary spend. Uh, you've got um, ability for our community foundation to have a home and really you know prosper from that. You've got our ability to run other events in that venue um, outside of outside of sport. Uh, the partnership with Newcastle College and their usage of the building, uh, the usage of the building from the local community uh, itself. You know building a participation strategy for the local community to come in and use the building and and also an opportunity for us to play in Europe which will bring more games uh, and hopefully more income that kind of segues nicely into uh, into the European conversation which I, is something that I definitely want to talk about um, you know there's been talk actually but in preparation for this interview I, I dug up an old interview you did in 2012 um, right. and back then you were talking about uh, trying to get into Europe and you know there's been conversations for years about you know when's the BBL team going to try and make the jump again and, and when are we going to see it you know how how far off do you think it, it's going to be like how far do you think uh, you know the, the Eagles are away from it um, why do you think it hasn't happened yet I thought this season with the Champions League and, and FIBA offering you know pretty decent financial incentive for, for every team that entered uh, I thought it was the perfect time and kind of it hasn't happened like what's your sort of take on the whole situation well, it's very simple for us. We we can't hire our current venue on a Tuesday or a Wednesday night, so we can't play. <laughs> right. That's it. That's the only reason. So simple as if you, if you had if you had a venue this season, you would be competing in Europe. Yes. Wow. And so and then in terms of timelines for your own facility, are we talking it's going to be ready by the start of next season? Well, that's what we're hoping. We've got the final pieces. Literally today, the final pieces of the jigsaw are falling into place with the building. So we're, we're hoping everything goes to plan and we get on get on the ground in December. Uh, and it's a it's a ten or so month build. So we'd be looking at end of October, okay. getting into the build next season. Which, would, to be honest, I, I think that would rule out Europe for yeah. the first season. A bit like. Same same situation that Leicester are going through. They're still mapping out, um, you know, the usage of the building. They want. I think ultimately they they really wanted to do a twelve month run with the build and take a look at the the business plan off the back of that. You know, so we you could know, potentially be seeing Leicester for next season and then the Eagles for the season after. Well, I, I hope that's the case. I can't talk for Leicester, obviously, although I know you know those those discussions are going on. Yeah. Um, but we we desperately want to be in and would be looking for the season after, and that's that's why we've invited the teams over that we have pre-season the last two seasons, just to really try and get an understanding of how far away are we from being relatively competitive at that level. We've learnt a lot, learnt a hell of a lot, just playing, you know, uh, bringing us over in Antwerp, um, Tartu, Bakken. 
it's 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 been and, and so did Talia from Sweden. It's been um it's been interesting. It's been what, it, and what would you say are the biggest the, insights that you've gleaned from from that? That we're not far off at all. <laughs> really not. And you know uh, what we where we would be a step away is we we need to deepen our rosters to um uh to take the hit of the additional games and the additional travel because ultimately we'll be playing a Sunday game away in BBL going you know getting on a plane on a Monday playing on a Tuesday back to play on a Friday night at home yeah so it's you know three game weeks NBA type stuff starts going on then and uh we you know we're not um, and I say we're not prepared for that. We've, we've never done it, so you know I think that that will be a shock to the system in the early days in terms of how how that affects the working week yeah. uh, for the club and uh, you know how, how we fit into it. But in terms of um, in terms of level of competition, uh, it's quite an interesting one because uh, you know back, we beat Backham by twenty five, I think, nearly thirty. In the friendly, there were a couple of players down, and we played Tartu in in the final that weekend, lost by one. And uh, rather rather strangely, Backen have just put Tartu out of Champions League, <laughs> um, beating them by twenty. Right. So uh, you know, um, so I, I kind of think you know, I think we're where we are right now is we would probably be a early days we would be a typical um 50 50 team in that in that open open sort of t- uh, group of is it group of four or five in the champions league whether we'd move on from that first grouping in the early days is is you know a question but uh um but yeah i don't think we'd uh um i don't think we'd disgrace ourselves at all I really yeah. don't. Do you, do you think there's a hunger from it for it from the fans? Um, you know, midweek games and stuff. I think <laughs> it's an interesting question, and I, I would I would throw that one back at you and say, is there a hunger from fans anywhere for midweek games in basketball? Yeah, anywhere in the world. Um, I'd hope there is. <clears throat> it's a difficult one because ultimately, um, you know, I I, I really do. I understand the demographic of our fan base quite well, and and uh, um, it is a night of entertainment as much as anything else. And, uh, and and we've got a very young audience demographic, so you go to midweek, um, you know, it's it's the real the real hardcore that are going to come out and support every game, whatever. Mm. Um, so I, you know, I don't want to. I think I think the reality is I would err on the side of caution and just know that you know this is this is just new world and um, you know we our audience base understand Friday nights and it's it'll, I absolutely no doubt it will take some time to get them to understand uh, coming out midweek I think it's yeah. a very different challenge and and equally um, you know we've had a we've had a bit of a sight of this with with the preseason games although the preseason games don't mean very much but. Um, you know, there's, 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 I think we have fans that would more readily buy, rather interestingly, BBL tickets than uh, than European game tickets. Um, really? But, yeah, but that's an education process for us. You know, why? 
in some respects, if they're not, if the education isn't there and the knowledge isn't there, and and you know, I know what I know because it's my my job to know it. But the 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 world of European basketball and and uh, the the cup system is is ever changing. Um, I think people have a will have an interest to to understand where we are in the pecking order as much as anything. Um, so uh, so we'll see we'll see. I'm hoping I'm hoping it would it will um, it will be positive straight away. I've no doubt it will be positive over a period of time. There's no question of that. But I think I think you know I've been in this long enough to know that, that any kind of event you have to build over a period of time. Yeah, it's funny you should say about the the, um, the education element of it because, you know, at the start of this season, me and Bradley, the, the guy that, that writes with me, um, you know, we're having a lot of conversations about Hoops Fix and kind of where we want to take it and what we want to try and do. And a large part of it, we feel at this point, is education. And, you know, you're talking about educating fans on Europe and stuff. We're talk- talking about educating fans on British basketball. You know, the amount of times... We'll write about something and we'll do a video about something that I think is like, this is a big story that people will care about. And we put it out and it's just crickets and no one cares. Yeah. Um, it amazes me. And whether that's, you know, whether that's GB, whether that's the BBL, you know, like I think one of the sort of, oh, it's not even that recent now, but I remember when, when Drew Sullivan signed back in, uh, in London with the Lions, like that was, a, you know, in terms of our domestic game, it was a massive story. You know, yeah. when I go down there and I film a video and I put the video out and it, you know, did a, a couple hundred views. And I'm just like, this is the GB Olympian, GB captain. He's returning home. He's going to be playing at the cough box, you know, a few minutes away from where he grew up. And just no one cares. And, and you know, we've spent so much time thinking about, well, what can we do to make them care? I'd be interested to kind of hear your thoughts on on how, um, how you would play that and, and what you think needs to be done to better educate um, basketball fans in the UK about the, the British game? Yeah, I mean, that's the, uh, the $64,000 question, isn't it, really? <laughs> um, I, think, uh, I think, firstly, um, all of our audience bases are slightly different, Sam. I think the demographic of your uh, of, of Hoot6 followers is a little bit different, will be a little bit different to the um, the sort of social media following that we have at Newcastle Eagles that we're different to our database um, so I think we've got um, I think it's naive to say that there is a general basketball fan that just enjoys basketball if that makes sense no matter what it is Yeah. I think it goes a little bit deeper than that there are people that like certain kinds of basketball um, whether that be the NBA or whether that be the British game because they want to support their local team or whether it be um, you know European basketball because they know and they <clears throat> they know and they understand that this this sport's just a lot bigger in Europe than most sports that we play in this country, other than football, uh, and that's a story in itself, isn't it? You know, it's, it's intriguing. Um, so I think I think it's um, it's trying to understand uh, that. Firstly, there are different types of basketball customer, but more, most importantly for me, and I don't think we've got this right uh, as a collective in the sport. We need to do a better. And this is a, this is a, a, a business approach, really. We need to do a better job 
of collectively databasing any person that has a remote interest uh, in basketball in this country so that we can communicate better with them. You know, there's ways to do that these days. That was pretty hard to do 15, 20 years ago um, because technology wasn't up to speed. But um, there are ways collectively all the different parts of the sport can come together to do that properly. And there are other sports um, that have done that really well for generations. You know, rugby union is, is always the one that I would, uh, <clears throat> I would throw out there in that they've, they've gone to their clubs for, for decades and decades to sell what was the five nations tickets and what's now the six nations tickets at Twickenham. And they sell out 72,000 as was, uh, it's probably more than that. Now they sell out those games every year because they know how to get to their market. Do you think that uh, that the you know you're talking about essentially for that to happen there needs to be uh, collaboration right everyone needs to work together which has kind of been a thing uh, a contentious point I guess over the years which people talk about within British basketball um, do you feel like we're moving more towards that you know with a new CEO, Stuart Kelly is obviously come in at Basketball England um, they've hired a, an insights manager whose I guess main role is to pull data that teams and organizations can actually use to say oh you know we've got this is the demographic of the people that are enjoying watching playing you know and whatever else our sport do you feel like steps have been made recently to get closer to that uh, or do you think we're still quite far off of it no i, no, I think they are <clears throat> i think they definitely are it's just we're going through another period of change and uh i've seen lots of periods of change yeah <laughs> um, and you know sometimes we're the target sometimes we're not um, and I think I just kind of where I'm at with it is I just want to kind of distance myself from from the number one, the past issues or any future issues and just focus on what needs doing. Um, and, you know, database, database. If you ask anyone that talks to me, that's all I ever talk about. Get this date, get this massive database together and start segmenting it and start communicating uh, with our market properly and if people don't want to hear this, the, the message they can unsubscribe you know but I would I would hope being a basketball customer myself I I need to know about things if I don't know about them um I you know I'm 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 no help do you know what I mean it's uh and I'm certainly not going to spend so uh and people don't you know this day and age people don't go looking um oh, yeah. there's, there's too many uh there's too much, um, too many other things that you can spend your, your, your disposable leisure time on, um, uh, and, and too many other hooks that people are getting caught by on a regular basis by organisations that are really, really sharp with um, that kind of communication. So, so I think you know I've, I've had lots of conversations with Stuart about this. I've had lots of conversations with Nick about this, and uh, um, yeah, I just think it's it's. Uh, uh, as, as I've said to you before, it's probably a point of just being a little patient here because I'd rather be patient and, and, and for all parties to get it right than, than not be patient and, and have another journey like we've maybe had in the past. Would you say coming into this season, uh, the facility and then the database stuff is, is your main focus? Like, what From a club standpoint, you as a managing director, what would you say are the kind of priorities moving forward? Well, absolutely. For me, it's facility, um, and uh, you know that's 
I'm kind of running two projects, I suppose, single hand, not single handedly. That's unfair to say. I've got a great staff here that are really, really supportive of everything we do, but we're, we're running two projects. Um, uh, you know, it's a full time project to get a stadium up and it's a full time project to, to keep the club moving forward and, and the foundation moving forward as well. So we, we could do, we could do a more resource here, but the hope is, you know, we get the building up and we start to generate more income in lots of areas and then we can staff up. Um, and, uh, and take another step forward. So for me, obviously, buildings buildings number one this year. Um, the database thing, well, we just crack on locally and, and keep growing our database. You know, we try and you know taking your your advice from years ago, get a bit better at social media. While well, we've tried to do that, and um, I can absolutely say, yeah, that's been a huge benefit as well in terms of. Um, this amazing world of, of free marketing, <laughs> which we never had ten years ago. Everything was mail shots and yeah. buying advertising space and so on. So, so it's definitely worth investing time in in growing our email databases, our social media databases, and building that building that community up that we can then regularly talk to. And what I think the job that needs to be done for me um, and is being talked up is how the sport takes my club database and adds it to everybody else's and we get a lovely great big number of people that are following the sport that, that comes out the uh, the mixer yeah um, and a way a way then to utilize that um, your database as well by the way Sam you know, the <laughs> yeah everybody in everybody in together everybody talking about basketball everybody being positive about the sport talking the thing up um you know we're the next big thing um legitimately the the you know number number two three team sport in the country which quite frankly i think we probably are anyway yeah um it just isn't that easy to um uh, communicate those figures at the moment um and get on that bandwagon you know get that get that in place and get on the bandwagon one thing i wanted to ask about and you've um referred to it a few times in this conversation is is the the community aspect of things you know the bbl has had some criticism over the years for for almost being a glorified uh community program in the sense that a large number of clubs um income and turnover is from the on the ground stuff they do in schools um with their foundations uh I feel like in recent years it's moved more away from that as the league has become more professional. And I'd definitely say that over the last, since I've been around anyway doing this, the steps the BBL's taken has, has been massive. And, you know, like we all know it's far from a finished product, but it's, yeah. it's moving in the right direction. Um, in 20, you know, now we're in 2016, 2017 season, how big of a part, um, when we're talking about income turnover, is the community programme uh, to, to your club and, and most clubs? Uh, is it still the lifeline of everything um, or are you less reliant on it? It's a really good question. Um, and again, it comes back to what what part does that play in our marketing strategy as a club? Um, so so first point I would make is, um, you know, I'd never, never castigate any, any BBL club or any club full stop in, in this country for um, working the way that they've worked over a number of years because, you know, my, my viewpoint would always be at least they're trying. 
Mm. You know, um, the last thing we'd want to see is a bunch of clubs disappear um, because it's just got too hard. Um, you know, that's um, that's not where we want to be. And I've, you know, I grew up as a, as a young player going through that. I played for three clubs that folded. Um, you know, stop playing National League as a result. So it's, you know, sustainability is the number one and people people just sticking in and, and cracking on and doing it um, rate very highly in my books. So that's the first point. Now, where, where does community sit? Um, okay, for us, uh, if we hadn't in 1999 when I took the club over, if we hadn't engaged uh, as a club in community work, so I have to caveat this. A lot of a lot of clubs have followed what we've done because we've been doing it for a long time. And I've, you know, I've been the one that said you've got to get engaged in community. You've got to get get engaged in community. The reason we did was because the previous three years, ninety seven to ninety or ninety six to ninety nine, under the under Newcastle United Sporting Club, we did no community work at all. And and what was happening around us around. Newcastle Eagles as a club playing at the arena was actually um, it's fair to say no one was playing basketball in Tyne and Weir no one, I mean if you go back and look at the records the number of uh, England basketball members in Tyne and Weir at that point was 110 <laughs> okay right. now, as a, as a, and I was one of them by the way I was one of them playing local league because I, you know, packed in playing national league because there wasn't a national league team to play for. Yeah. Um, so, so we had the, you know, that situation where the local league had died across the nineties, and that you can map that out across the rest of the country. By the way, it happened everywhere. Um, lack of ability to access facilities, not lack of facilities, lack of access to facilities. Um, school teacher, caretakers locking the doors after after school hours lots of for lots of different reasons. So so I, when I took the club over, I took a look at it and thought, well, if no one's playing and we've got a pro team in the, in the city and the, and the regional area and we keep promoting the way that we've been promoting, i.e. we'll go and do, we'll, we'll do adverts on the TV and on the radio and we'll go and do schools visits, but we'll do assemblies and, and we'll leave the assembly with the player and the teacher will say, where can the kids play? And you turn around and say, well, actually, I don't really know. There's a problem, isn't there? Yeah. Okay, so what I, what I would say is this. At that stage, we had to do something in the community uh, alongside a, a very small number of other protagonists in the area that were trying their damnedest to get the sport off the ground or back off the ground because it had, had been really strong in the 80s up here, late, you know, late 80s. Early and late eighties, so we get we engaged in community to try and try and help grow the basketball playing market, pure and simple. Now, yes, it had a financial um, uh, income effect as well because there were there were grants available to to grow activity that helped us grow a staff base in the foundation, and you know the result of that for us is is you know sixteen or so years later. We have twelve full-time community coaches and, and nearly thirty part-time, running a you know a very very largely extended community scheme across across the region. Uh, we're running fifty-two junior clubs um, on a weekly basis. You know, not national league clubs, fifty-two local junior league clubs that play each other. 
Um, and for me, if you don't have that piece in the jigsaw as a sport, like football do, like rugby do, what I grew up with from you know nine, ten years of, of age, cricket as well, if you don't have that piece in place, you can't grow the sport, pure and simple. And, and anything else that, that needs that market won't grow either. And that includes the pro teams. So I've got to, and, and that includes pro teams in any sport, Sam. Same model that we're all we're all working on the same models. So for me, that's always been a huge building block in what we've achieved over a period of time in in terms of building that sustainable audience base. You know, any any given night, I can sit in our audience, whether it's in the corporate section or out out with you know the fans in the in all the other seats, um, and I I will sit with parents whose kids are playing. Um, and whose kids have actually explained the rules to the parents because the parents didn't have a clue about the sport and why should they because they didn't grow up with it mm. so so for me it's not quite answered your question but <laughs> I was going to say I was going to say when we're talking so so let's can we talk about percentage of your income yeah. it represents so so okay so what we've done and, and this was a key for me because you, you know the castigation out there is always that well you, you're just doing your community just running your community program to pay your players and, and actually if that's if that's the way you've got to move forward to grow the thing then I, I would say first and foremost what's the problem because we're just trying to grow the sport but where we're actually at today is we have a um a big red line between our foundation and the club and the foundation run all of the community activity and the club is the team okay so we have community coaches that go out and deliver activity and the team players act as role models as one on one of the one of the programs the foundation's turnover is the same as the clubs right together we're at about this year we'll be at about 1.1 million and you can't can you take money from the community stuff for the club no. stuff or you literally it's completely cut off separate cut off separate and that's the way I want it to be as well because actually what we want to do uh, is grow a community coaching base um, made up of uh, you know young people coming out of uh, FE and HE that have an interest in working in basketball in this area and giving them jobs that's what we want to do that's what we've always wanted to do and actually the building will help that yeah um, now that's not to say the players don't do any community work here anymore. They do. They they um, they're part of the you know our Hoops for Health scheme that's been running for 16 years now, and they act as role models and go out and deliver road shows um, one afternoon a week. Uh, so that's a lot a lot less communication time or, or contact time than than we've had in previous years. But I've always I've always been quite keen to make sure that we're not sending our senior pros out. Um, with a bag of balls coaching <laughs> yeah. and again and again people have heard me say that for a number of years now it's more important for me that um because uh, because you know uh, a pro player on a bbl team isn't necessarily a coach right number one or or, or wants to be a coach but what they are more often than not is um a real stand-up character um very very engaging 
um, you know, in, in all the years that I've been involved, there haven't been very many players come through this this club that haven't lit up a room when they when they enter, if you know what I mean. So, yeah. so it's, that's a massive thing for us as a sport because I have worked I have worked in other sports um, on a professional level, and uh, you don't necessarily get that in in other sports, and you certainly don't get um, the, um, the the positive um, support of said players to go and do that work in the first place. Um, it would it would possibly in other sports get done begrudgingly. Yeah. Following up on uh, the first point you made um, about it's it's more important that teams survive, you know, and they, they've got to do what they need to do to do that. Where do you sit on the fence of the argument that, you know, could you say that actually, well, maybe the BBL would be better off if it cut down in size but ensured there were minimum standards and uh, teams had to do certain things or weren't doing certain things and there was a level of professionalism across the entire league compared to actually, no, we want more franchises but it means that, yeah, we're going to have to put up with a couple of them that maybe aren't exactly where we'd want them to be professionalism-wise and level-wise. Yeah, it's a great, another great question, and, and and one my my personal view has always been: don't have less clubs because you know I've worked, like I said before, I've worked in a few different sports, and, and ice hockey is a good one for me uh, that, that I've been involved in 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 past years, and the uh, the elite league dropped seven teams one year, uh, which was. Uh, was at the time very difficult to incredibly difficult to market number one because you're playing the same team four or five times yeah. uh, in a season um, but just didn't feel like it was growing uh, as much as anything else I think the most important thing and I, and I totally totally understand you bring more franchises in they don't all go the way that you want them to go necessarily or there's a risk that they don't go the way you want them to go and a league is always as, only as good as its lowest common denominator. But I would I would equally say the issue again that this sport has is we don't have enough clubs. Full stop. Whether it be BBL or the division down or the division down, that there aren't enough. So we've got to try and find a way to answer that question moving forward. And in order to answer that question. You've got to sort the bit below that, which is why, you know, I rotate back to why we worked so hard on participation, why we did the community work to try and build the local market, uh, playing the sport and interested in the sport in the first place, because that in itself then helps to subsidize the next tier up in, in a lot of respects. You know, just general interest in what's going on at the next level can help to subsidize that next level. So. I'm not answering your question in terms of uh, um, minimum operating standards, but what I would always say is I, I would I would be very very wary about uh, reductions in teams to try and increase the quality. And I'll tell you another thing: the one thing you absolutely end up with there is less jobs. Yeah. When, when we need more. And also, obviously, the caveat to that is we need more that are paying the, at the right level as well. So, I understand that. Yeah, it's always uh, 
yeah, it fascinates me having all these conversations. You know, I speak to so many different people and <clears throat> kind of, um, it is so easy to identify, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> I've got something in my throat. Um, it's so easy to identify the problems, yeah. but, but not so easy to identify uh, workable solutions with the way with the way everything is at the moment. Um, and it's almost, I mean, yeah, like I, I don't even know the answers. That's partly why I have these conversations because I just find it so interesting to kind of dig into it all. Um, and carrying on from, from something that you said about the, you know, when you talk about your community programs, and again, it's a balancing game because Newcastle Eagles, you know, many, many people call, call you guys the model. You know, you've got this huge, huge participation base. But then when you flip that on its head and you say, okay, well, what about talent development? Um, you know, where are the players coming through? You know, who are the top top guys that have, that have come out of, of kind of your catchment area in recent years? And there isn't that many, you know. No, of course, um, yeah, yeah. And so, you know, where, how, do you, how do you think about that? Uh, how is the club approaching it? Kind of what, what are your thoughts on it? Yeah, so we're... Um... In a lot of respects, again, we're trying to be we're trying to be all things to all people, um, and equally trying to take on you know bigger and braver projects as we go along here. And I, uh, you know, the staff here all all know this. Our priority um, from taking the club over all those years ago has always been to help to try and build the participation base for the sport in this area. That that's been the number one priority. It still is. Um, I I completely accept where we are with um, our performance program. Um, we're running five national league teams as it stands: 14s, 16s, 18s on the boys' side, and uh, I think 16s and 18s on the girls' side. And obviously, we we tear up to Gateshead College, Time Met College, Newcastle College. Uh, and then up to Team Northumbria from there. So, so the pathway's in place. Where where we're as soon as we get into the building, um, because it'll help give us that focus. Where we will start to really work, uh, look to work a lot harder, is in that um, uh, player education and coach education area. We've got a lot of young coaches. Um, when I when I started out, um, the um, the sort of history of, of, of coaches in this area all come out of the teaching system historically, uh, and a lot of those a lot of those coaches when we started out were finishing up pretty much. They weren't uh, weren't looking to maintain an engagement, so we had to start, you know, with the with with, with young guys, you know, the March Stutels, the Ian McLeods um, that been working with us since they were nineteen, twenty years of age. So we're we're kind of we're kind of, we were struggling with a coaching a performance coaching base here that I think we need in place to to do what um, you know the Myerscoffs of this world have done so well Neil Hopkins and Co. Um, and we, it's not that we don't know and we don't understand it. It's again just trying to focus in that area whilst building a big participation program whilst running a BBL franchise, obviously the input that we have into all of the Team Northumbria program as well, and then Gateshead and Time at Colleges. It's a lot to go at, um, and we're not going to do all of it brilliantly. Um, I think if we dropped 
obviously the massive participation program and just focused on National League would be a lot better at it. Yeah. There's an argument. There's an argument towards um, what I call um, traditionally. You know, this is going back to days of studying in sport, um, hot housing of players, uh, and you know, is there is there a, a, a rule of, of thumb there that says if you if you work intensively with a small group. Can you get them to world class? And I, I believe you can. Actually, believe you, you can. But the, the problem here is this: we want to be a mass participation sport. So, how do you become a mass participation sport if your focus is on elite only? Yeah. And I still truly believe that, and, and this is my conversation to Stu, uh, Stuart, and Co. Is you know we we should be we probably already are we just we're not joining the dots up as well as we probably could but we're seen as a mass participation sport government funders see us as a mass participation sport but we have a huge focus on the elite um on the national league end shall i say of of, of what we do as a sport and I'd, I'd really like to see a greater focus on what are we doing in participation you mean getting kids playing younger and um, providing more community programs at a sort of much lower grassroots level? Yeah. So as a you know as a nine year old kid playing playing football in Bristol, um, I had I ended up playing for four teams: Saturday morning, Saturday afternoon, Sunday morning, some, Sunday afternoon, and under tens, uh, different under tens divisions of of the Bristol local leagues in football. I couldn't get out of it. You know, it was you're in and you're in and and you're playing and you're playing and you're playing on a local basis, never traveling more than a couple of miles to play the competition. And in basketball, I didn't have that as a as a I had to wait until I was 13 and joined um, our senior local league team that that played at our school uh, club called Lockleys that's still still operating now. But I was a 14 year old playing with 30 year olds because there was no junior local league system in place yeah and and no national league basketball either in bristol at that time yeah i mean that's yeah i, I totally i mean i grew up in eastbourne which you know the the basketball outback and uh you know our yeah. nearest club was was brighton bears which was yeah. uh, about a 45 minute to an hour drive um depending on traffic and there yeah there were no national league clubs you know we would just play. There was a guy called Marcy who, who set yeah. up a local club, um, yeah. and it's one of those things where you know I, we were never coached at a particularly high level or anything else. But then I look at that and I think, well, if actually if he wasn't there doing, doing providing that opportunity for us, um, yeah. there would have been absolutely nothing uh, other than school so competitions. Your, so your yeah, and your interest your interest in basketball would have disappeared very quickly, and you would be what you, you wouldn't be doing what you're doing now. You'd be yeah. doing else so and i think that's (coughs) i think that's an important point because um the the more people that get engaged at that right let's take it back a step if we were just if we were just focused on national league competition alone and everything else is just a little bit too hard because it is hard to try and get mass participation moving on a local level when when the infrastructure isn't there it's really hard um but if we were to just do that, 
I did a quick tot up of um, how many National League teams are running, junior National League teams are running this year. There's 300, just under 350 boys teams and 85 girls teams. Um, so you're talking what? Just over 4,000 young people playing at National League level in the country. Mm-hmm. Which is a great figure, by the way. Um, in terms of a player pathway model, that's a great figure. Uh, but if that's all there is, which we know isn't the case, we know there's a level of participation below that. Um, but if that's if that's where the focus is alone and there isn't a, a real proper focus on the level below and a strategy towards that level below, it's never going to be mass participation, is it? Mm. Well, there, there isn't. Like, what is the strategy for the level below? Is there a strategy for the level below right now that exists? Um, I think there are projects. I think there are interventions. And I think there have been interventions for a very, very long time. But I've always been an advocate of getting a map on uh, getting a map on a wall and, and uh, you know, doing an audit of, uh, okay, what happens for, uh, you know, under 18, down, local league participation in basketball. Uh, well, let's, let's carve the country up county sports partnership by county sports partnership and, and find out, you know, yeah. and try and work out what, what, it, what is in place. You know, I can tell you for football in, in Tyne and Weir, there's 900 teams. Really? 900 junior teams play in the pinpoint league 900 wow it's incredible it's, yeah. i think it's the biggest in europe that's crazy uh, yeah like, i can't until i feel like uh until the until the federation takes more central control over this stuff nothing will change you know for me right now everyone is Everyone's working in their own individual little pockets, pretty much doing what they, whatever they need to do without any input or guidance or, or fitting into a larger part of a, of a wider strategy. And until that changes, I think it's very hard for anything to change. Yeah. It's a very, you know what though, at the same time, it's a, it's a, it's a job and a half. Um, oh yeah, for sure. To work, to work that um, riddle out because, you know, ultimately... In, the protagonists in football don't have to do that. Protagonists in rugby don't have to do that because it's been there for for the best part of a hundred years. Those club sites that are all networked up together and all talking to each other um, has been in place for a very long time. So it's a it's a proper jigsaw puzzle to to really try and audit and work out how that comes together. And the fact that because it's been relatively entrepreneurial for a, for a long a long period of time in the regions, you know, just the the good work of um, lots of different people in this sport trying to pull all that together is 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 tough. But you know, like I say, I've had that conversation um, with with Stuart, and and Stuart's coming from that background. Mm. You know, that's what he was doing, uh, and the, the type of uh, Work he was doing at British Cycling was 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 in participation and uh, and partnership management. So so he gets it. He really gets it. Um, but it's but it's how you move forward from there. And obviously, you know, we've we've already talked to Stuart's working to get um, uh, a representative, um, rather large grouping across the sport in, in working groups to to come together to. I hope have that conversation 
Uh, there's only, you know, if you try, it's the same as anything in life, isn't it? And we've just had the conversation before about Newcastle Eagles are greater participation, you know, foundations greater participation, but haven't been so great at, at um, delivering talent. Um, what do you focus on with, with limited resource um, and limited support? Because uh, it's, it's very hard to go out there and do it all and be good at all of it. Mm. Why, uh, it's something I thought about earlier, but then we got sidetracked and I never followed up on it. Why do you think that we haven't seen um, BBL teams, whether that's you guys or, or anyone else, um, following more of a European model in terms of signing young British players to contracts um, with the intention of you know, ideally developing them through for the for the first team to play in the BBL, but also you know if they do end up as a talent and they do end up wanting to go to Europe or whatever else, potentially having a you know getting a buyout um, for them, which would then help fund the program and help you become more self sustainable. That's a very interesting question. Um, it's one that's been talked about a fair bit in the past. Uh, I'd say the first the first point is obviously. You know, you've got to bring the talent through in the first place, and and uh, uh, we're all at different levels in that respect. Uh, I think there, I think the biggest the biggest issue there in the first place is actually being able to have the conversation with the the individual player and the parent of the individual player to to say this is the right route. And I've, I've had those conversations with. A very large number of players across the year, uh, years, obviously in competition with that player's opportunity to go uh, to college in the States or opportunities in Europe at early ages. Um, and then equally, um, at a certain stage, you don't have that conversation with the player anyway. You have it with the agent. Yeah. And that's a whole other story um, in, in terms of uh, our conversations with um, agents of young British players coming out of college. What would you say about that? Um, it's a difficult one. It's a difficult one, and uh, because, because would you, is that because do you think it's fair to say that the BBL um, has a stigma in the sense of the like a lot of young British players just don't want to play in the BBL because they they almost fear, see it as a as a as a as a tarnished mark on their career, and then it's hard to get out of it. Or would you say it's something else? I don't. I hope that's. I hope that's not the case. Um, but what I do know is that the the market of agents that we talk to um, will um, will obviously try and place young players, uh, particularly young players with good stats, young players coming out of college, as high up the chain as they see it in Europe. Mm-hmm. And it's a meritocracy at the end of the day. If there's a, if uh, the agent's job is to make sure that they they get the far, the best, as much as anything, the best place for the individual and the best financial package yeah. for the individual. Now that financial package for me, and this is what I've seen over over many many years, um, sometimes works for that individual, and that that individual ends up playing in Europe year on year on year, but sometimes doesn't. You know, sometimes goes wrong. Um, and uh, that that player in season two is then struggling to find a place, and uh, you know I worry about where the agent is that second year and that third year. So 
so for me, I suppose what we're we've done a little bit of this this year um, with with the turnover of players that we've had. Um, you know, we 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 want to be engaging with agents in May with regard to uh, British players that we're interested in, not the end of August. If and that makes sense. It, so, are you saying that? Uh... A lot of the time when you're trying to have the conversation early, at that point they're still trying to focus on getting somewhere in Europe, so don't want to have that conversation. I'll leave that one to you, Sam. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. But but you know what? If that is the case, I understand it. I totally understand it. It's just it makes it difficult for us because the budget's spent at the end of August. Yeah. By the I mean, end of August, I, I we've know. got to recruit a team at the end of the day, by hook or by crook, we've got to recruit a team and yeah. we've got to really recruit a team by, by mid-July um, from a, a, a logistical point of view, um, much as anything. So, yeah, well, it's like, tough. tough. I was, was going to say that I'm sure there are a number of players in recent years that have been offered more money to play in the BBL than they would have, they would or they were going to get in Europe but have still chosen to go to Europe. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm not. Yeah, I'm not entirely sure whether that's the truth or not. But uh, uh, and it's it's very hard to generalise because you've got you've got guys playing and, and there's so many different levels in Europe now. I think the one good thing is, and I said this to you the other day, I, I can't remember a time where there have been so many young British players playing. Uh, at a really decent club level in Europe, yeah, um, and, and by by that I mean above above Regionalia in Germany, above yeah. you know anything below NM2 in in, in France. And by the way, NM2 is pretty pretty decent level. Um, it's just the, the system in France is is incredible, incredible top to bottom. Um, uh, by the way, uh, the French governing body has a million members. Really? Yeah. Wow. So so you kind of supplant that figure into everything that I've just been talking about the last hour and, and everything works. Yeah. Pro teams, TV viewing figures, everything works because that market is 1% uh, of their, um, sorry, 2% 2 of their um, population. That's crazy. Do you, do you see a time when when British basketball could could uh, could get to that sort of size of membership? Need that database, Sam. Yeah. Need the database. <laughs> yeah. That's the bottom line. It's you know how how why why have why have those seventy two thousand people turned up to Twickenham to watch England for all of those years because they were just well they they knew it was on. Yeah. They received the message through their clubs and they came and the market grew as a result. But it can't. It can't be that hard to build a database, can it? Really? Um, yeah, just got to have the right. The right. There is a. Da there is a database there at the moment. Um, but I, I just think there's a. There's some kind of a network that, that has to come into place where all the, all the key, all the key, club organisations and different parts of the sport that have a following, collectively come together to really pull that into place. Yeah, and it's the, it's the governing bodies that need to lead on that. I, well, I wasn't wasn't the British Basketball Union <laughs> meant to do all of this stuff? That, that's, I mean, that was a yeah, that's exactly that was exactly its purpose. But that's, actually, it's almost done it's, nothing, though, has it? Not since. <laughs> yeah. 
Same. So it was. Uh, I mean, it was that was a, an organisation that Kevin Routledge and and actually Keith Mayer and myself, uh, Simon Tucky, while he was while he was around at British Basketball. Um, you know, we can't one, one good one good project just come together and say right. If we can do nothing more than just try and pull a database together uh, collectively across the sports, um, let's see what we can do. It's drifted because people have have moved, um, but I think it's a prime time to to come back to that and try and work work a uh, a solution again. Not to run at it and try and get a quick win, it, it, because it's. There's another riddle in there to, to to solve to pull that together properly and bring everybody together, and it's not as simple as all of that because you've got data protection issues and all manner of things to do right. Yeah. Um, to to get uh, uh, to get people onto systems um, legally, shall we say? Um, but I hope you know. I think that I think the people that are in the positions right now understand the benefit of, of, of pulling that together. So um, so hopefully that's something that we really work on the next few years. I think that's a perfect place to leave it. I'm conscious of time. I know you've got to uh, to head off. So I'd just like to say a massive thank you. Uh, it's been really interesting. And I think we will have to get you on for a part two at some point in the future to go into everything that we, we haven't even touched upon uh, in this one. So thanks, thanks very much for joining me. Thanks, Sam. You are listening to the Hoops Fix podcast, the official voice of the UK's largest basketball website. Visit hoopsfix.com for exclusive news, videos and more.